Welcome, welcome, and welcome back to another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Serlo, and I am ever so delighted to have you back. Uh, we got a a great episode for you today, if I do say so myself. Granted, I may be a little biased, but uh, uh, we are recording this podcast on Wednesday morning, March 14th, and we are right in the middle of the, I don't know, we'll call it the second or the third uh, generation of Tiger Mania. This past Sunday uh, was the final round of the Val Spar Championship, uh, perhaps the most uninteresting golf tournament on the PGA Tour until this past weekend when Tiger Woods made his return to the top of the golfing world in the literal sense in that he was sitting atop the leaderboard for a portion of the tournament and ended up falling just one stroke short of forcing a playoff with the eventual champion, Mr. Paul Casey. Uh, we'll get in a little bit to uh, some of the specifics with Tiger in this podcast, but before we begin, uh, I'd like to take a quick moment to tell you about our sponsor, Health IQ. And Health IQ is a life insurance agency that is geared towards providing people with life insurance and giving them great rates if they are healthy. So if you're not a complete piece of shit and you like to exercise and you are a healthy human being, I strongly encourage you to go visit healthiq.com forward slash golf guide and get a quote for your life insurance to see if they can save you uh, some money on your monthly premium for life insurance. So one more time, healthiq.com forward slash golf guide or mention golf guide when talking to a health IQ agent. Um, again, if, if you're a healthy person, uh, you may be able to save some money on your life insurance and health IQ wants to help you out with that. So one last time, healthiq.com forward slash golf guide or mention golf guide when you speak to a health IQ agent. All right. As I mentioned before the ad, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast at all in the past, you know that I am about as big of a Tiger fanboy as exists in America in 2018. My just golf Tiger boner was at full mast all weekend. And despite the fact that I host a golf podcast, I live, breathe golf. I just I love everything about our sport. You know, I, this is probably the most PGA Tour golf I have watched since the Open Championship or the PGA Championship of last year. And it appears that the golfing world uh, was feeling the same way. So now that it's Wednesday, the final numbers uh, from the telecast of this weekend's, of this past weekend's Valspar Championship have come out. And to no one's surprise, the TV ratings for Sunday at the Valspar exceeded every single day of golfing telecasts that did not include the Masters. That is right. Sunday at the Valspar, part of the treacherous and absolutely horrific Florida swing on the PGA Tour, got higher ratings than the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, and the PGA Championship simply because our man T. Gray is back in the mix. And, dude, it is just so good for golf. I mean, not only for the TV ratings, but um, I, I thought it would be good to mention just how much of an impact Tiger has on golf, the sales, and the popularity of the sport. I, I don't, anybody who is a fan of golf understands what Tiger brings to the table in terms of encouraging people to get out and participate in the game. But uh, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. I was reading a, uh, a post, it might have been on Reddit uh, on Monday or Tuesday, 
Uh, it's just some guy who works at a bar in a golf shop, uh, probably somewhere in the Midwest, I believe. And he was saying that just the fact that Tiger was in contention on Sunday, you know, the, the bar that he was working at was packed. And that when he left the bar, you know, he, he left with three to four times the amount of money and tips that he normally would get on a shift on Sunday when a PGA Tour event's going on. And that kind of economic impact is going to be going far and wide to every corner of the golfing industry. Um, this past Monday, um, we had our outing, our play day at Green Valley Country Club. It was fantastic. The weather was very cooperative. We had several people drop out the week before because they were afraid of the rain. And, you know, un- unfortunately for them, we had a day of spectacular weather on an unbelievably fantastic golf course, Green Valley. They were such wonderful hosts. They had everybody ate, you know, a really nice lunch. The golf course was in fantastic shape. Um, but while we were there on Monday, their general manager, Ryan, who's a, a very, very nice man, uh, was kind of, you know, we were talking a little bit about the tournament and Tiger on Sunday. And he was just saying, hey, listen, man, if Tiger comes back and is competitive again this weekend at the Arnold Palmer Invitational, and then he goes in and he actually is competitive at the Masters, I will guarantee you that my golf shop is going to see double the amount of sales and equipment that we have the last couple of years. I mean, it's that single guy, his effect on the golf industry and how much money he makes everybody is just really otherworldly. And we've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, I mean, Tiger, I mean, not directly, but I mean, Tiger's responsible for, you know, the amount of growth and, you know, the thousands and thousands of golf courses that were built in the United States and around the world from the mid-90s to the early 2000s up until the uh, the big economic crisis of 2008. I mean, with, without Tiger Woods, I, I don't think it's ridiculous at all to say that there would be several thousand less golf courses in the world. Uh, and, and it's just because of Tiger Woods. And Tiger, I mean, I, I think I may have heard this on Bill Simmons's podcast uh, on Monday, but what's really phenomenal is Tiger is alone the only athlete that i can really think of in america that's not involved in the olympics where everybody wants him to succeed i mean everybody uh, i mean there of course there's a, a handful of haters brad i'm talking about you but they, i mean for, for the most part everybody wants to see tiger do well and it's such a cool thing that it's this one athlete that everybody can rally around and support uh together and you know for that reason alone God, I just hope his back holds up. I, I just hope he stays healthy because golf is just so much better uh, with Tiger Woods in the mix. If Tiger is competitive again uh, at the Arnold Palmer Invitational this weekend, you're going to hear me go on a similar love rant uh, next next week as well. So I, I hope I get to continue to talk to all of you about how much I love Tiger Woods and how good he is for the game of golf. So let's just all keep our fingers crossed that uh, he continues to stay healthy that his game continues to improve, and that uh, we are going to have a really, really fun 2018 when it comes to professional golf. All right, as I mentioned, uh, Paul Casey did end up winning. Very, very good to see that guy get back into the winner's circle. Uh, you know, they had a little uh, clip on the telecast on Sunday with Paul talking back and forth with his caddy. Caddy just seems like just the chillest dude ever. I heard that uh, his caddy used to be on the bag for Luke Donald, but uh, the two of them together... Uh, had a great weekend, a 65 on Sunday. While we all kind of wanted to see Tiger uh, bring home the bacon on Sunday, uh, I think Paul Casey winning his first uh, tournament in many, many, many years was a, uh, a pretty good second option uh, in terms of having a guy win up there. So congratulations to Paul Casey. Patrick Reed, you really blew it, man. 
Uh, all right, let's go on to the next item of business before we get to our interview for the day, and that is the new rules of golf. So the USGA and the RNA uh, came out with some finalized uh, rules. I know me and Casey talked about all the proposed rule changes in a previous podcast. It might have been all, almost a year ago. I know it took place at some point last year. Um, but a couple of new tidbits, the three items that stand out for the new rules of golf that are going to be put into place uh, next year um, is the dropping of the ball. Originally, in the first uh, version of all of the proposed rule changes, they were saying that you would be able to drop the ball from any height. Uh, that has now been changed to you must drop it from at least knee height to preserve the random ability of... Uh, of the lie for when you drop a ball. So you will not be able to drop uh, from two inches off the ground, but you got to go from at least knee height. Personally, I, I think it's fine. I just think it's going to be really weird to see golfers, you know, squatting over and then trying to drop a ball from their knee height. It's just going to look like a lot of people, you know, squatting and taking a dump in the middle of the golf course. But besides that, I think that's all, uh, I think that's all good. The next one is they have removed the penalty for the double hit. So when you're chipping, you decelerate like an idiot and then you hit that ball again right in your follow-through, somehow, some way, they are not going to penalize you for that. So that is uh, that is interesting. My dad is going to be very happy about that rule. He is a perennial uh, double hitter. So uh, good for you, Ricky. That is fantastic. And then uh, last item uh, for the new rules of golf is uh, they are giving courses uh, the option to implement a local rule where they can play out of bounds as a hazard. So, um, I mean, you're still going to be seeing at like high, uh, high level tournaments and professional tournaments uh, out of bounds. The, the rules is, are going to be exactly the same. People are still going to be charged stroke and distance for hitting the ball out of bounds. But now the USGA and the RNA are giving courses the option to have all of their out of bounds played as a lateral hazard where people will not be charged distance. They would simply go up to where the ball entered the out of bounds. Uh, take their one penalty stroke and hit it from there. I think uh, more than anything else, it is simply to uh, help improve pace of play, uh, which I think is excellent. And also, it's just going to make it a little bit, it's just not going to be quite as brutal for people that aren't really, really good at golf because getting charged stroke and distance, uh, it's tough for a lot of people. I mean, you know, at least for me, if I hit a ball out of bounds off the tee, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, well, Jesus Christ, I I guess, man, I got to get my shit together so I can make a double bogey here where, all of a sudden, if you don't have that distance charged, you know, you can hit a bad golf shot. And if you play the rest of the hole really well, you still have a chance to make bogey. Uh, so I think that's kind of exciting. Um, I, I think that's a, a step in the right direction for the USGA. So uh, tip of the cap to them. And uh, that just about does it for the items of news that I wanted to cover uh, in this episode of the podcast. So now I will hand it off to uh, myself and a Mr. Darren bunch darren is a fantastic human a man who has got his fingerprints all over the golfing industry especially here on the west coast but darren does a lot of traveling for golf news net him and his partner mitch lawrence uh co-host a podcast called uh golf getaways you know uh, i mean it's, it's just that they do a lot of great stuff where they help people learn about different places to go travel and to play golf in Uh, Darren is also involved in the upcoming Pacific Gales Project, the new golf course and resort in Port Orford, Oregon, that's located about 45 minutes south of the Bandon Dunes Golf Resort. Um, And we will actually be covering uh, Darren's involvement with Pacific Gales in a later portion of the podcast. 
when, when we recorded this last week, it turned into a golf talk marathon. I mean, I, I think me and Darren ended up talking all things golf for well over two hours. So um, to help preserve your guys' sanity, I'm going to break this thing up into a couple parts. I, I still have not decided whether or not I'm going to put it into two or three parts. Uh, but whichever one that I do, um, you know, sections of my interview with Darren are going to be released in various episodes over the next month, month and a half. So uh, I really hope you guys enjoy it in this first part. Um, obviously, being involved with Pacific Gales, Darren loves golf in Oregon, absolutely loves Bannon Dunes. Um, it, it's funny, he's probably as big of a fanboy at Bannon Dunes as I am, which uh, means he, he loves that place just about as much as any human can love any location on planet Earth. Um, so for this uh, podcast, you know, before we even got started talking about anything else, we basically just had to break down how much we love Bandon Dunes and started talking about the resort for a while. So, uh, a little late night Bandon Dunes pillow talk for you with me and Darren Bunch. So please enjoy, uh, this interview and please enjoy, uh, the rest of this golf guide podcast. If you like what we do here, I encourage you guys to please support us by going and leaving us a review on iTunes. Uh, everyone helps and, uh, I very very much appreciate your time for listening and also your support of the podcast. So without any further delay, let's kick it to myself and Darren Bunch here on the Golf Guide Podcast. Do it. Whenever you're ready. Perfect. Everybody, welcome back i have the pleasure of being joined by mr golf getaways himself darren bunch darren how are you doing this afternoon kyle it's great to be on the show great to be on this side of the microphone uh the podcasting microphone and uh uh, as we were talking off air a little beforehand it just means i don't have to do any of the post-production on this which makes me very happy which is awesome the best part (laughs) is the last two podcasts that i've done now you and i had uh, andy johnson from the fried egg on last week and when when first thing he said, I was like, Andy, how are you doing? He's like, I'm just so happy I don't have to come up with any questions today. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, uh, but uh, for you, it's post production. For him, it's questions. But anyway, Darren, I, I leave I leave all the questions to Mitch on our uh, on our podcast. So he does all the research and the and the questions, and uh, I just have to come along for the ride and hopefully throw out a little bit of expertise every once in a while. Well, Mitch doesn't seem like a bad tour guide from all, all the stuff that I've seen that you guys do from uh, Getaways Golf and uh, and Golf News Net. It's uh, no, you guys do a fantastic job. So before um before we guys really jump into it, um I kind of intentionally tried not to do too much research on your background and what you're doing because i wanted to kind of have it be an organic sort of conversation uh where we just kind of go to it obviously i've been following you on social media for uh a couple of years now i mean ever since i moved back to california i think in the beginning of 2015 i started using twitter then because i'm a layman and i you know i'm very very slow when it comes to technology but uh i i've really enjoyed all the stuff you do on twitter and on instagram and uh this has been a long time coming i think i originally reached out to you a couple months ago during the off season and we're finally making it happen so why don't you let me and all the listeners know a little bit about yourself, uh, your association with Golf News Net, and all you know all the other prudent, uh, you know surface level Darren Bunch info that people should be privy to. Well, I work. Uh, I like to say I work two full time unpaid jobs <laughs> right now, um, but but really uh, my background was in 
newspapers. I grew up in newspapers. I, I worked at the college paper at Point Loma Nazarene University down in San Diego. I worked for other small uh, newspapers. And I ended up as the Sunday editor of the Las Vegas Review Journal, the big paper in Las Vegas. And um, I got out of newspapers kind of at the right time as everybody started to get laid off and kind of wanted to get in the golf business and hooked up with uh, my now good friend, Vic Williams. Uh, he was running Fairways and Greens magazine. And uh, eventually we became co-owners in that, uh, put out some, I think, some really good work over the years. Uh, it eventually became Golf Getaways. We uh, became acquired by a company called Matavor Media out of uh, the Boston area. We worked for them for a number of years. And then when uh, it kind of came time to put that to bed, uh, I had to go look for stuff to do. And uh, fortunately, uh, I had a, a friendship with, with Mitch Lawrence. I dove into the technology side of things and began to produce uh, a podcast that he had been doing for a while called Golf Connections, which was more of a long-form interview show. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one day we were sitting around talking about that show, and we were just you know talking on the phone. It was kind of like uh, the episode of Seinfeld. We were yapping back and forth, having fun, and and uh, one of us said, you know, this should be a show, and you know, we should just talk about golf and travel and all the stuff that we like doing and. You know, we were already both in the travel business and the golf business, so we kind of took it from there, and we're about to hit 100 episodes now. Uh, a lot of times, most of our guests, we do two episodes. We do a kind of a wide-ranging, broader, uh, topical type of thing, and then we do a thing called the Emergency Nine, which is uh, the nine questions we get asked most about uh, golf travel and as golf travel journalists and try to get everybody's answers on that. We're actually talking right now about uh, as we pass the 100-episode mark, uh, we've got a uh, hopefully a big name in the golf industry who's going to be uh, there for that 100th episode show. Uh, but we're actually talking about uh, maybe changing up the Emergency 9. We've come up with a couple of new questions, and we're going to start working them in. And uh, So I do all that. Uh, I do the post-production, obviously, on the, on the podcast. And we hooked up with Ryan Ballinger, who's doing a fantastic job with Golf News Net. Uh, it's just shooting up the charts in terms of uh, uh, the exposure it's getting online. Uh, he's done a, a tremendous job there just building it into an entire network. And uh, it just made sense for us to to work together and kind of provide the travel content. Uh, another friend of ours who worked at Golf Getaways, uh, Eric Hart, a uh, really good writer, he's joined up. He's doing a ton of work for Ryan as well. And so uh, the network as a whole is is really strong and growing. And you know, for me, this was all just kind of a uh, a transition, really, because I had the opportunity to get involved with the Pacific Gales project up uh, just south of Bandon. Uh, all the permitting's finally done on it. It's been a you know I've been involved in it a couple of years. Uh, the guys who've been trying to do it have been involved in it for ten. It's it's really in the final fundraising uh, stages now, and we. Uh, we're hoping to break ground later this year, and and that's where my full attention will turn to. Uh, that what I like to call the next chapter of my life will will be up there, uh, working as part of the uh, operations team at Pacific Gales, which uh, I'm incredibly excited about. Every time I get a chance to be up there on the property, it's it's just unbelievable. I got to tell you, man, I I am not involved in any way with Pacific Gales, and I can't even put into words how excited I am 
for yet another golf destination to be opening in one of my favorite golf locales in the entire world. So, uh, and I, I think we, it is going to be necessary for us to really, really dive into Pacific Gales at some point in this podcast because I, I am absolutely fascinated, and it just seems like there's probably few people out there more qualified to, uh, you know, to, to breach the topic than with you, which is, uh, well, which is seen- awesome. Yeah, I've seen your episodes. Uh, obviously, you're a huge fan of Bandon Dunes, and I am as well. I've been going for years. Um, in fact, when I go up and and have to do things for Pacific Gales now, uh, you know, I go play Bandon Dunes. I, I I love it there. Uh, Kemper has been tremendously uh, uh, helpful to me over the years of my career uh, at all their properties, not just at Bandon. But it, it's truly a special place. And it was on a trip to Bandon Dunes that I got invited. Uh, down to Port Orford to hear about the Pacific Gales project by uh, Troy Russell, who was the original superintendent of Bandon Dunes and and ran the old Bandon Golf Links golf course uh, there in Bandon for a while. And uh, he's kind of the guy who got me involved in this and and it kind of took off from there. And, um, you know, to, to just continue to build more and more great golf in that area, I, I like to think about Pacific Gales as possibly the King's Barnes uh, to the the old course and St. Andrews courses. I mean, Bandon Dunes is a behemoth. It's it's always going to be the draw. And uh, our project would never even exist if, if Bandon hadn't been so successful. Uh, but it, it, it's a great piece of property. It's going to be a tremendous place to play golf. Um, you know, I talk with Jim Haley and the architect, uh, uh, Dave Essler, you know, every week about different things that they're thinking about. And you know, we're we're trying to put something together there that's truly special and maybe a little bit different from Band and Dunes, so people have even more options for playing golf when they come to the Oregon coast. Uh, yeah, I could not agree more. And I, it's funny because I had to, in the very few notes that I had actually written down prior to us getting the podcast together, I just had a little note saying Bandon. He's as big of a junkie as I am. <laughs> I love how it took us less than ten minutes to jump into. Yeah, I just love Bandon so much. I, I mean. For me, I always tell my buddies when I'm trying to rally them together because we go on a trip every single year up there, and this is the year that I finally jumped up into the group reservations where I got a group of 48 uh, stockpiled nice. for us for the for the weekend after Thanksgiving. But I mean, it's like, you know, Disneyland is great, but it's no longer the happiest place on earth. That that title belongs to the you know the folks up in Band and Dudes, <laughs> which I, yeah. I yeah I just I I cannot get enough of that place. Um, are you still making trips up there every every year, or do you try to make it up multiple times a year because of the Pacific Gale stuff? What's your what's what's your band and going uh, practices at you know recently? I've been there. I've been there every year or twice a year for probably the last five seven years. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not one of the guys who has been going ever since it was just one golf course. Uh, there were two golf courses when I went on my first trip and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actually, I think we previewed a few holes on the on trails when I made my first trip. But the the once I got up there, uh, you know, it was it's unbelievable. And you know, I love everything about it. I love everything about that stretch of the coast. Uh, the resort is fantastic. They've done a wonderful job with it. You know, it keeps growing and keeps growing. I love going out to the Sheep Ranch. I love playing Bandon Crossings, uh, which is a little bit closer, kind of in between the resort and where we're building Pacific Gales down in Port Orford. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've stayed in, uh, the people there, Rex and Carla Smith are great at Bandon Crossings. They own houses, um, kind of throughout the area that you can rent. I've stayed in a number of their different places. Um, I've stayed in every lodging, uh, option there is now, uh, at Bandon at the resort. 
Uh, I had never stayed in the inn, and just a, a few months ago, I was up there and, and stayed in the inn for the first time. Um, but I've stayed everywhere, including the uh, the golf suite up on top of the Tufted Puffin uh, that overlooks the 18th of the Band of Dunes course. So, uh, yeah, you could say I'm a junkie, and uh, I've, I've you know since I've been going up there, I've said, hey, I want to go move to the Oregon coast. I've lived my entire life basically in places that are really hot. <laughs> Uh, here in Bakersfield, I lived in Las Vegas and worked there. Um, so I want to go someplace where I don't have to turn on my air conditioner all the time. And, um, you know, uh, the Oregon coast, there's no better place. No, I, I completely agree. And for me, it, it is fascinating that it took as long as it did for the lovers of golf to realize that there is genuinely wonderful Lynx land in, you know, in the United States. And it's right there on the Oregon coast. It, it's just it, it's it's really refreshing and wonderful to see developers and whatnot taking note and being like, oh, oh, there there could be world class golf here. That and we don't have to do a lot. I mean, obviously you got to do all the permitting, which is a lot of work. But I mean, the, the land is there. The land is ripe for excellent golf, which uh, is super super exciting. Now, before we jump into more Pacific Gale stuff and some other stuff, since we're on the note of Bandon, I I am obligated to ask you the question that you've probably answered no less than five thousand times in your life. I'm not going to ask you to rank them because I don't think that's fair. So I'll ask why? You, well, why not? Because why don't I, you think it's fair? Well, because for me, I don't have an answer. I, I every time somebody asks me that question, my answer is different because it all depends on my mood. But I, I love the way that Matt Janella uh, always phrases the question: where you get ten rounds at the four courses, how do you distribute your ten rounds? Yeah, let me try to think about this. I, I and I've answered this for Matt before, and um, uh, but I did a piece. A number of years ago, I had a friend who was having a 40th birthday party, and we went to uh, we went to Bandon for his 40th. And as I wrote the piece for Golf Getaways, um, I I reached out to a bunch of the golf journalists I knew, and I had them rank them. And so, uh, um, if 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 I'm ranking them, um, my rankings are I, I like Old Mac the best. Of course, I play Hickory Golf Clubs. Uh, it's big, it's bold, it's wide. Um, it, it's it's more playable on the ground than the others. Not that the others aren't. Um, I, I I've also enjoyed number two for me is Bandon Trails because I like the strategy that Core Crenshaw brought to it. The cross bunkers always seem to be in the exact right place. Uh, I like the walk through the trees, and I don't have to be right on the water uh, to ex- to enjoy the experience. Um, and then I used to have it Pacific. And then Bandon, and I flip-flopped on that quite a bit. Um, obviously, the more I'm involved in Pacific Gales, um, uh, Jim Haley, the project manager there, and the guy whose dream Pacific Gales was, he was a shaper for David McClay Kidd on the original Bandon Dunes course. And I've played it a lot more in the in the past couple of years and really started to fall in love with it a lot more, um, and, and which which – ironically then puts Pacific Dunes, which obviously is the most visual of them all. Um, it puts, it puts it last in my rankings. And again, that's not to say that there's anything bad with it. And I've played, I played Pacific Dunes, I think three times this year and, uh, I had an absolute blast out there. So I understand what you're saying that it's hard to, it's hard to rank them. Um, I honestly, if you give me 10 rounds there, uh, these days when I, when I make the phone call up there and I say, Hey, I'm coming up. And especially if I'm just by myself, uh, I, I tell the reservation people, 
uh, just give me the best time with the fewest people around so I can play as fast as possible. Uh, I'll take any of the golf courses. So for me, it would be, you know, I would do two, two, three, three. Um, and if I had to, I'd pro- had to pick, I'd probably go, um, I'd probably go old Mac and Bandon as the, the ones I would play three times and Pacific and, and, uh, trails that I would play twice. So um, it's so I awesome. It, it just every every person you talk to has a different answer, and I think that in itself is what you know is is a testament to how spectacular those spots are up there. Because it, it's funny that you say because Old Mac has really really grown on me. I, the very first time I played out there, I wouldn't say at all that I disliked it, but I got my ass kicked so badly by those <laughs> greens out there that I just I couldn't properly and honestly evaluate the golf course because I was just walking off 18th. I was like. Looking at my score, I was like, "God damn! I just had forty-four putts. What the hell just happened to me out there? Like, <laughs> I, I, I just, it was just a bloodbath. I mean, I, I don't even know what to forty-four would be a would be a good day for me I, on Sunday, I, right? It's like it was a bloodbath out there. Like, I I can't. And, but every single time I play Old Mac, I, I love it more and more and more to the point where it's right there, right at the very top uh, for me as well. And it, it's kind of funny because. I'm sure that you've read. Uh, I really wish I wasn't blanking out on the author's name, but the the book they did of Dream Golf uh, right. that they, they wrote after the first. Uh, I think the first two or three courses were done up there, and then you know right after they put the added on part for Old McDonald, and I was reading how Bradley Klein, you know, the editor for Golf Week, you know, and and all the guys that were working on it with former Jim, former, oh, former editor me, for former, Golf Week. Oh, is that is that recent? Yeah, Brad Klein moved to uh, Golf Advisor. Oh, he no was kidding. lured away to join the team at Golf Advisor oh. just, uh, I think, just a few months ago. I just heard about it as well. Interesting. The big boys anyway, at, sorry. The big boys at Comcast are really trying to high, you know, po- poach That's all right. that big talent away. Interesting. Um, well, I, at least you know. I mean, I, I'm telling you something you may already know, but him and all the people were confident that that was going to eventually be the most popular, you know golf course at the resort which again after that first 44 putt effort on my part i was like jesus christ i don't know if that's possible people are going to be crying when they walk off the 18th tee and they're going to be 18th green it's just and man i they were absolutely right it is it's just so big the scale of it is only matched i mean at least i I have played far less golf than you have uh in terms of getting out to travel to different spots but the only place that even registers to be on the same scale has got to be you know the old course and obviously the new course and and uh, and the links out there at St Andrews. It, it's just it's a spectacle. It's a golfing spectacle that everybody uh, sh- should get to go around at least once. Yeah, it's incredibly wide. It, it there's so many different ways to play uh, into so many holes, and um, you know there's some there's some holes I love that are just you know quirky, and I like quirky uh, as long as it's quirky fair and. Um, you know, I, I just, I can't get enough of it. I, on the last month when I was up there, I, I played, uh, with Michael Chupka, who the, uh, communications director there, uh, wanted to play Hickory's. So we went out and we played old Mac in the afternoon on a glorious afternoon, played Hickory's, had a match. Um, I mean, uh, Michael's a golf pro. So, you know, I figured, well, I've got him in Hickory's here. We'll play straight up, but we'll play a match. And, uh, uh I actually missed a putt to win on the 18th hole. Um, but it was, it's so much fun to play for that reason. Uh, You can, you can do so much with the golf course there. And, and then, uh, you know, a couple days later I played, uh, in a just crazy freezing monsoon and, uh, you get up to the turn stand, I think it's on 
eight, seven or eight. Yeah, eight T. Uh, eight T and also kind of behind the fifteenth green if you're coming from the Yeah, area. yeah. So so um uh those guys played I was playing with some I'd been paired up with some people and it was a I was playing with three guys and then there were two threesomes ahead of us and these guys were all together. So it was like nine guys and um it was so bad they all walked off the golf course on uh after playing the eighth hole. And uh, I left me out there by myself. And I, of course, played the rest of it because I'm abandoned dunes. I'm not walking off the golf course. What are you, insane? Yeah, yeah 100%. Uh, so, uh, you know, but but you can get anything out there. And it, it's just, I don't know. I, for me, I just have the most fun on it. I don't think it's as penal as a lot of the, uh, some of the other golf courses. I mean, there are some tremendously hard shots on old Mac, but, uh, there are also some just crazy spots on the other golf courses that, uh, that I'm always talking about. You know, I think the stretch of on Pacific of, uh, uh, 16 and 17 is, is very difficult for the average golfer. Um, obviously 16 on band and dunes. Anybody who follows me on social media has seen my, uh, travails in a bunker there, uh, on the par three, uh, not the 16th, 15th, I'm sorry, the par three 15th, uh, in the front bunker there. And, um, you know, where I took what seemed like a hundred shots to get out of that bunker. Your devil's um, asshole video is, and still is absolutely fantastic. That, yeah. That, more than a, more than a million views, yeah. uh, overall across all the social media yeah. platforms. So I became a viral video star. And, you know, it's interesting to talk to people who are making comments on that thing. You know, you got, you got the people who are like, Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I've been there. And then you've got the people who are like, this guy doesn't know how to hit a golf shot. And I'm like, okay, I'm hitting with a hundred year old, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, niblick here out of a bunker, one of the hardest bunker shots you're going to find, you know, probably in the U S uh, to a tight pen. So yeah, I'm trying to do something that the average guy is probably not trying to do, but also I learned that day, uh, don't ever put it in that bunker. Yeah. That, you know, that, I, I've always said, and, and I, I know that, uh, David McClay kid is doing some work on that hole, but I've always thought that was the most difficult hole on that golf course. Cause if you don't hit the green off the tee, th- there's really no good angles to get, to, to get to anywhere on that green complex. I, I've always considered that hole to be an absolute ball buster. Well, and the drop off, you know, even if you stay out of the bunker, if you hit it long right, you know, the drop off is is crazy. And, yeah. and the people who, you know, um, there's a hole on Pacific and I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. I think it's on the front nine um, where there's a giant bunker on the left hand side in front. And the green is this little sliver that Doak put up there. And then it drops off um, and rolls off almost toward another green on the back side. And if you don't have those kinds of shots to be able to either putt up those slopes or hit a runner, I have a club called a jigger that I hit for the most part on those. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could spend all day just trying to get back up those. And, and, uh, 15th at, at Bandon Dunes is the same way. It's, uh, uh, it can get a little crazy. Um, but you know, some of that is the fun of the challenge of just crazy links golf. And when you go overseas and you play in, you know, Scotland and Ireland and, and those places, you're, you know, you, you encounter those kinds of things too. And, um, you know, for me, it's always been kind of, I I'm willing to point out the things I think are maybe unfair, but at the same time, I like to embrace those challenges and, and you know, and, and, uh, have a blast with them. Cause I'm not out there really killing myself for, uh, to try to break 80 all the time. I'm just going out and playing and having a good time. Yeah, I totally agree. And no, number six, I think is the one at Pacific dunes that 
it, it, I, I can't think of any other 310 yard par fours that probably have more sevens and eights on the scorecard. Exactly. Yeah. Six, six is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 And, uh, uh, if you don't hit it down the right side, you know, you face that bunker. And then if you don't hit a pinpoint wedge and, and, you know, I understand that, um, you know, I talk about that tobacco road is one of my favorite golf courses on the planet out in North Carolina. And we talk about one of the par fives there all the time uh, is the 13th that has kind of a bathtub green. And when Mike Strantz built it, you know, he told the owner, uh, Mike Stewart there, uh, Mark Stewart, he said, um, you know, you've got a wedge in your hand here. So, you know, hit a wedge shot hit a good wedge shot and you've, and you've got a putt for birdie. But the good thing about that is it's the opposite scenario. It's a bathtub. So if you do miss a little bit, you might get a kick back onto the green. If you miss a little bit on six at Pacific, uh, you, like I said, you're down there in that swale, deep swale in the back, and then you're trying to not hit it over the green into that ginormous bunker or, or dune or whatever we want to call it over on the other side. So, um, you know, sometimes – uh, Lynx golf can get uh, extreme, um, but again, that's like I said, I, I, that's part of the fun of it too. Totally, and uh, I'll, I'll give you. Uh, oh man, I'm just so excited to talking so much bandit. I can't, can't even get words out of my mouth. But uh, I'm going to leave you the one last bandit dunes question, then I'll I'll move on to because there's just so much stuff I wanted to cover with you. Uh, and this is a debate that we had going on uh, down in the bunker bar after our round at Old McDonald last year. There's a couple that I think are in strong consideration, but what do you consider to be the most difficult hole at old mcdonald because there are a couple of genuine ball busters out there but everybody that i talked to had a little bit of a different opinion did is, is there one that just always seems to just kind of crush you every time you got playing that golf course or have you somehow mastered each golf hole at one particular time or another no <laughs> no and I, I will be honest with you and i've told people this i tell everybody who will listen and some of it is because of my game and and the way i play um but I absolutely hate the tee shot on the 17th. The par 5 17th mm -hmm. is so brutal, and it's because of the wetlands. So you've got those wetlands that jump in from the right side, and, and then you've got basically just a sliver of fairway there. And for me, I'm not hitting it very far off the tee, and, and I think about this from other people like Mitch. Even if Mitch is playing modern clubs, Mitch is in his 60s. He's not he's – not, banging it beyond that wetlands unless the wind is really helping you. And I'm never out there when the wind is helping me. I don't know why. So, you know, I have to aim and I hate doing this. I heard Phil Mickelson talking about this in Mexico about a hole where he actually aims to hit it in the rough because he wants that angle. I have to do that on 17, uh, at old Mac. I have to hit it. I have to aim left and try to just hit it in the rough over there to stay away from the wetlands. The problem is you start doing that, you aim left, and then you hook one, um, which I don't do a lot, but, you know, I just last trip I did it there. You know, you hook one, and then all of a sudden you're in the gorse, and now you're re-teeing off the, off, the, off the tee, and you wish that you had hit it into the wetlands so you could at least drop up there. So, uh, so that, to me, is the hardest uh, hole and that's the hardest shot I face on the golf course uh, anywhere. Uh, now other people can play that hole really well. My buddy Brian Orr, golf photographer extraordinaire, mm -hmm. um, uh, made a what felt like a thousand yard putt on me on that green. It's such a big green, 
And uh, he buried one for birdie on me one day there when we were playing a few years back that just I, I still every time I'm on the green, I remember it. And I, I pace it off for people sometimes when I'm there. I'm like, hey, I had a buddy who pin was in front and this and he hit it to the back of the green here and, and made a putt. And, um, so, I mean, obviously that hole is playable. Um, but uh, to me, uh, every time the wind's blowing, all I'm doing is looking at those wetlands and thinking, boy, I wish those wetlands weren't there. I, I could not agree more. I, I think that's probably the single most difficult shot on that golf course. And the, the three holes that always come to mind, uh, 17. And the thing is, with I, I, I'm relatively young. You know, I, I'm 30 years old. I don't hit the ball a mile. But, you know, I, I, hit, it, I hit it farther than my 65-year-old dad, who also isn't, like, much of a slouch. Although some would argue he's a tremendous slouch. But that's, that's besides <laughs> the point. Um, and, you know, I, if, if I'm hitting the ball really, really well, I can probably pop it out 240, 250 in the air. And I don't know if it's just because I always play in wintertime and the winds blow that certain way, but I try to get right at that left edge, and, man, it is so 50-50 whether or not I'll actually be able to clear the line of where, where that marsh is. And I'm thinking to myself exactly what you just said with some, as it relates to Mitch. Like, what the hell does somebody who doesn't hit the ball 250 off the tee do here? I mean, is there even fairway left and, like, short of that, that wetland out there? It's just... Uh, Ooh, and, and then I think about uh, what I read in that dream golf book, how Jim Urbino wanted to have a Carnoustie-style, you know, uh, kind of moat sort of thing, running you know, back and forth through the fairway. I'm like, this guy just hates everybody. He, he just flat out hates everybody. Like, what? what how? <laughs> I was just trying to imagine that when I was sitting on the 17th tee last year. I was like, that just, that just wouldn't be very nice. If you're going to put a moat out there, you should put sharks in it. Yeah, right. No kidding. Uh, but uh, it's, no, I, it, I'm, I'm with you. And it's uh, I, we actually talked about it when I played with Michael the other day. Um, you know, I, we talked about the idea of and I've I've considered this. I do this at Tobacco Road on number one. Now I try to I, I, I lay up, you know, if you, yeah. you get to these situations where it's a neck like that, that you can't you're not sure you can hit it through and you know that it's going to going to result in a penalty stroke. Um, you know, I've thought about hitting a 150 yard iron just coming up short of it because I'm, I'm probably better than most and certainly better than most people who play hickories, uh, with my woods, uh, with my fairway woods. And so, you know, I could hit at 150 there and then go, uh, you know, essentially three wood, three wood, uh, possibly and try to play it that way. I haven't tried to do that yet, but who knows, maybe next trip now that we've talked about it, I'll, I'll see if I can do it. Yeah, that might be the move. And then the only one that I'll, then, uh, the other one that I'll note is, for some reason, number four, the one after the big uh, blind tee shot over the uh, the oh, dead tree, I don't know what it is. Again, it seems like the wind is always playing into me, so that 500-yard par four seems like it always plays 675. So that, yeah. that, one, that one hurts. And then the one that actually running in the same direction as the other three, number 10. For some reason, those fairway bunkers always find you know my tee shot and that green complex, the one that is the shared green with the short uh, par three fifth, that goes yes. it just has that insane like 40 yard you know 40 foot tall false front that runs like two-thirds of the front of the green i that hole eats my lunch every yeah. time out there yeah I, I, that one specifically but back to number four the other day when i was playing before these guys all walked off the golf course <laughs> um uh, i made five at number four in just the driving wind and rain i i, I hit one close and made a putt um and uh i walked off there and I said, well, wow, I, I hardly ever make par here. <laughs> and then I, and then the guy said, well, you know, that's a par four. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I like totally forgot. And so it, it feels like such a long, <laughs> it feels like a long par five that, that is a par four. You know, the other hole that I feel, I, I love number three. 
Um, I like the blind shot. I like the tree and everybody. My buddy Eric Hart hates that hole. Um, And uh, I feel for people, again, who don't hit it, um, don't have the driver play for those holes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be frustrating. I watched a whole group, uh, all four guys hit it into the hillside the other day in the, in the driving rain. So, you know, I, again, those are the, those are the times that you have to just kind of embrace the, uh, the fun and the challenge and the elements and, and say, well, you know, it it didn't go right for me this time. And next time when I'm standing on that tee, I'll have those jitters because I, I'll remember that I didn't do it. And then when you do, uh, pull that shot off the way you want to, you know, it makes it all the more rewarding. I, and then I love the second shot on three too. So it, it just, uh, but I love most of the shots on the golf course. I agree. I, I, Except number, number for the tee shot on 17. Except for the tee shot on 17. How, how many times have you just cracked the ghost tree before? I've never hit the tree. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm multiple cracks in. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never hit the tree. I, uh, um, I, I'm always missing it one side or the other. Oh, so. perfect. Well, uh, actually, I, I want to jump into something else uh, with you, Darren, because I'm fascinated. I, I know, obviously, following you on Instagram and Twitter, that you've been a massive proponent for hickory clubs, as you mentioned a couple times already. And I am fascinated. I've never played with hickory clubs before, but everybody that I talk to that uses them, either like you, or they use them all the time, or even mixes them, you know, here and there with their new clubs, I've never heard a single person say a single negative thing about playing with hickories i kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit like how how did you get into it and it, how does somebody like me who doesn't have any experience with it just start picking up and, and messing around with the hickories and stuff well i mean my hickory obsession is all because of mitch and um so let's blame him first and foremost all right mitch it's your fault uh, it's cost me you know uh thousands of dollars now and you know uh, heartache and everything else, but it's, it's so it's all Mitch's fault, but, uh, Mitch got into the, Mitch got into Hickory's, uh, God, I want to say almost 10 years ago now. And, uh, I was on a trip with him. I, I was at, we were at Pinehurst and we were playing together. We were in a foursome and he had started, he got into it and he was playing, uh, modern Hickory's There are a couple of companies out there that make modern, uh, Hickory clubs. One is Louisville golf, uh, the other is Tad Moore. And so he was playing modern hickories and uh, we were out at Pinehurst and I said, oh, I got to try that and and loved it. So I had a blast, um, hit a couple of shots with it, but nothing serious. Uh, then he and I were working together. John Rollins uh, used to do, I'm not sure if he still does it, but uh, did a celebrity event, a charity event in, in Richmond, which is his home, Richmond, Virginia. And Mitch and I were there. His wife was playing in the celebrity event. And um we were interviewing guys on the tee and, and in the time between groups coming through, we just talked about clubs and golf and hickories and, and he really got me excited about it. So I came home and I was walking through the living room and I remembered that my wife had picked up a hickory club, uh, at a thrift store we'd found in, in Southern California. And she was, you know, she said, well, we should use this somewhere in the house, you know, decoration wise. And so I kind of looked at it, and and it turned out it was a um, it was a Stewart. It was made by Tom Stewart, uh, forged head from probably 1915, 1920. Uh, hickory shaft. It was in pretty good condition, and I kind of played around with it in the living room a little bit, and went out in the yard and knocked around a few golf balls and thought, you know, I'm going to go to the golf course. It was late on a Sunday afternoon. I went over the golf course. 
uh, took three golf balls and just that club. Went out on the first hole, which is about 350-yard par four, and didn't even tee it up, just tossed the ball down, hit this shot down. I probably hit it about 180 yards. It's one of these clubs that hits like a five iron. It looks like a two iron. Um, looks like a butter knife, you know. So uh, I hit the second shot. I was just in the rough a little bit, had a soft lie, hit it up to the front edge. Well, I get up there and I'm like, well, I have a, didn't bring a putter. Uh, I would normally putt the shot. So I hit a little runner with it and I hit it in the hole for birdie. And I went, hmm, well, I guess I'm hooked with that. I got on the phone immediately to Mitch and told him. And then I played the rest. I played 18 holes that day. And I think I shot, I kept track. I think it was 104. Yeah. Um, but I hit it. I mean, I did everything with that one club. I hit it out of bunkers. I, I did all kinds of stuff. And uh, I was hooked. And so I started, I got online and started looking for where to find golf clubs. And, uh, obviously the place to do that is eBay. And I found two guys who bought and sold Hickory clubs here on the West coast who did most of the buying and selling on the, on the West coast. Um, and it turns out that they both live within an hour of my house. I live in Bakersfield, California right now. Uh, but I grew up in a town called Porterville, which is about 45 minutes North. Mm-hmm. One of the guys still, one of the guys was from Porterville. My dad actually knew him. And, um, I befriended those two gentlemen, uh, Arlie Morris, who has since passed away, and Jimmy Hill, and they kind of taught me everything they could about how to work on them and how to get them, and I bought clubs from them, and I bought clubs from other people who have them, and uh, I probably have, I don't know, sitting in the closet right here next to my little podcast shanty, um, I probably got 80 clubs, Um, and then from there, it, it began to spiral because Brian Orr, who I mentioned, uh, we were at uh, Tothill Farm in North Carolina playing golf, and uh, one afternoon he was washed out of a out of a photo shoot because it was overcast, and um, he said, "Hey, let me hit your hickory." And by the end of that trip, he went home, sold his regular clubs on eBay, started collecting hickories. Uh, I have a regular force on my play with here, guys from Porterville uh, that I've been playing with for years. Uh, two of the of the other three guys in that group. Uh, now play hickories and you know it became this kind of just organic thing where more and more people um, I mentioned Michael Chupka from from Bandon I said I was coming up he said man I'd love to play the hickories you know I went up I took him some clubs Um, and then I started running into people who also do this I've been on uh, media trips you know with other guys who are playing hickories and and uh, there's a whole community out there of people doing it so if you want to uh, it's not hard to find them. And, uh, you know, I tell people, you know, uh, the biggest thing you have to look for in clubs is uh, make sure they're playable. Um, you know, and there's some work that you need to do on a, on a hickory club before you even try it. And I've had clubs that look great that I hit one swing and the head comes flying off of. And I've got some that are in my bag right now that I've had since uh, in the, the full seven years that I've been playing. So, you know, it's it's a process. Uh, it's an adventure. Um, I like the working on them. Um, I regrip all my own with, you know, I buy leather in a big giant hide and I cut it into strips and I regrip my own clubs. And, you know, I've taken them all over the world. Um, uh, you know, I, I kept track last year. I played 75 different golf courses last year uh, in my travels. It was a particularly insane year. And the hickories went everywhere from, 
Australia and Tasmania and King Island uh, to Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I, I've, I've taken them out to Hawaii. I've been to Scotland with them. Uh, so, you know, they just uh, they keep going with me everywhere, and, and uh, I have a blast playing them. That is so awesome. Well, you can, while I have not hit one yet, you could add me to the list of those people that says, Darren, I'd like to play those hickories. That sounds like a lot of fun. Because <laughs> I think the biggest, I think the biggest thing for people is that when you do it, it allows you to kind of shed your expectations because you know, you're not going to go out and shoot even par with them, you know, or break 80 or whatever the normal thing you do is. However, I have had some pretty good rounds with them. Um, most at the hands of, of my friend, Brian Orr. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've broken 80 twice with the hickories and I've done it both times against him, which has been really nice. Yeah. That is, that, that is a really nice time to do it right in your buddy's face. That, that, that's when it feels the most satisfying. Um, <laughs> what, I, I guess if you, if you've got a huge stockpile of hickories, do you still find yourself going online and like shopping and wanting to get more and more, or do, have you feel like you've finally got to that point where I think I have as many hickories as I'll need to use. I can chill out for a little while. I don't look for them as actively right now. Um, one of my buddies uh, who picked it up, picked up the game, the Hickory game, uh, Jason Moyes, is a lefty. And so we're always looking for clubs for him because they're harder to find. Um, and so he buys like literally anything he sees that's left-handed. Uh, and then we try to refurbish it. Uh, for me, I've got enough right now that – you know, even if I break one or two here, I can put another one into service. I have enough to be able to take and swap out shafts and do other things. Um, but so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actively in the hunt, uh, the way I was. Um, but I'm also part of a larger community now of people. So when people have clubs that they're trying to, to either sell or get rid of, or they've worked on, um, you know, I, I kind of end up in that loop of, um, hey, maybe Darren's interested in this. And and Mitch is always looking for clubs, and he's kind of in a hotbed uh, where he's at in Myrtle Beach. Uh, there are quite a few hickory uh, purveyors down there, uh, people who are working on them. Yeah, including uh, Tim Alpa, who's up in, in New York, who's been on our podcast, uh, who does just some tremendously beautiful work in, in his restorations. Uh, Chris McIntyre, who came up with the, the golf ball that we play, um, which is a replica of a square mesh ball from the 1920s. Um, he does some tremendously good restoration work as well. And there, there's just a whole community. If you start looking for Hickory Golf on the social media, uh, you'll you'll start finding guys who do it. And I saw the other day that uh, uh, PGA Tour uh, Zach Blair, um, you know, said that when he's not playing tour events, when he's when he's out playing uh, his friendly golf. Um, he's playing with persimmon heads and I'm not sure if the shafts are, are hickory or not, but you know, he's kind of embracing the old school as well. And, you know, you see people doing it all the time. I've seen video of, uh, Jordan Spieth playing hickories and it's, uh, there are a lot of people out there doing it more than, more than I ever realized until I got into it. Yeah. Which is great. Now, I guess that begs the question. If somebody, I'll I'll just use myself as the guinea pig. If, If I wanted to get into it, would you suggest looking more towards the people that are currently making them? Like I think you mentioned Louisville golf and Tadmore, um, or, or would you be more inclined to, you know, encourage someone like me to go, you know, check on eBay and try to find something that's, you know, a hundred years old or something like that. And, and really is, have you noticed a huge difference between the newer hickories and, you know, the actual original hickories? Well, I found the entry level for people is to go ahead and buy something from Louisville that, you know, you know, isn't going to break on you. You mm-hmm. don't, 
you don't have to do as much work that way and you can get a feel for what it is. Um, for me, I, because those clubs are made technologically every bit as good as, as the new clubs. Um, you know, I saw that, uh, uh, I think it's John Ashworth who's building or link soul, yes. uh, is, is now doing the, the persimmons and, um, you know, the, those clubs are all built with modern technology, but with, with classic elements in them. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a great way to go for me, the collector process and the, the age and the history. Um, and I'm not a huge history buff. Like I can't tell you, uh, you know, the people who made all my golf clubs and you know, what all the marks mean and all that kind of thing, Mitch and other people can't, your name is not Mitch Lawrence. So you are not, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, um, but there's just something about, um, you know, playing a golf club that's a hundred years old, uh, the feel of it and that really makes it special for me. And so that's what I do. And that's, I jumped right into, uh, doing it that way. Um, but I, I've seen people do it a wide range of ways, uh, whether they go with more modern hickories and, and get into it that way or, or the other way around. Um, I've shamed Brian, uh, he used to play a Louisville, a Louisville golf driver all the time. And I finally, I shamed him into uh, having to get a, a classic driver because, uh, you know, I told him, I said, well, anybody can hit a modern driver, Brian, even though it's Hickory. So, uh, you know, why don't you play like the rest of us? And so anyway, he, he, he has, uh, he has done it and he actually gave the, the Louisville golf driver, uh, we had, uh, I think it was one Mitch had had and he had passed it on to Brian. And then when Brian went to, uh, classic, uh, playables. Um, he gave away the Louisville golf driver we had to, uh, our caddy at Bandon, uh, Joey Russell, uh, who had caddied for us a number of times and was always talking about getting into hickories. And so we kind of made it his gateway drug, uh, to start playing hickories. Uh, that is phenomenal. I, the only, I guess the only experience I've had personally is, uh, obviously persimmon woods with steel shaft drivers and, you know, a lot of my friends, even on the trip we go up to Bannon, I got a couple buddies that'll bring them along, and it's always fun to hit them. But I, I've just always been curious as to how much of a difference that hickory shaft makes. Um, I, I guess you know, is it accuracy that becomes more difficult? Is it the distance? I mean, it, is the shaft itself the biggest difference between the hickories and the more modern clubs, or is it the actual the whole the club head, or is just everything in I general? Like that. I think the club head is is more the less forgiving club head is always going to be the the thing that makes the game harder. Um, you know, a lot of my clubs I look down and and my driver, you know, I put my driver up against like my R1 and just you know wonder how I even get the club on the ball. Hmm. But when you're when you're playing it, that's that's just what you see and that's how you do it and um so I mean to me that the shafts for me um you know, I feel like a senior flex in a lot of ways, you know, the, but the, the biggest thing you have to overcome if you're playing hickories at all is just the idea that you're going to break it. You know, a lot of people won't go down and dig it out, you know, dig out a shot in the fairway or whatever, because they, they're timid because they feel like they don't want to break it. And I tell people all the time, look, you're going to break a club. So get that out of your head. It's going to happen. So you, you know, can't try to sit there and predict it. Just start hitting golf shots, and then uh, eventually, when one breaks, it'll break, and then you know you replace it with another club or fix it and move on. Is it tough to yeah. find uh, spots that can actually fix hickory clubs? 
Um, well, yeah, you got to find people who, yeah. who can do it, which is why I kind of taught my, you know, taught myself and learned from these other guys so I could do all the work on them myself gotcha. because, uh, um, you know, but there are guys out there who will do it for a price and, and will fix them for you. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you've got to, to get around, you know, you, sometimes you got to take shortcuts. Um, I use epoxy on a lot of things just to, to keep them together. Um, I broke a driver at Bandon a couple months ago. Uh, not even swinging. I, uh, I slipped, uh, it was wet and I slipped and fell on my golf bag and heard a club break and said to myself, don't let it be the driver. Don't let it be the driver because the woods are way harder to fix than, than the irons are. Interesting. And of course I, I, I snapped my, uh, uh, my driver. Uh -huh. So, uh, I had to epoxy it and put it together and it's put together with, uh, uh, epoxy and electrical tape right now. So people look at it and go, what the heck? And I go, Hey, I just had to get it back to a point where I could hit it. So, uh, that's great. I, I guess the last, uh, the last hickory note, uh, I'll hit with you is, um, and this is one other topic that I've, I had to have discussed a couple times with guests in the past, but, uh, it would just be so awesome to see a professional tournament contested with hickory golf clubs. Do you think that is even remotely possible? Or do you think the golf club manufacturers hold too much sway to ever allow that to actually happen. I think it would have to be some type of charity event mm -hmm. if they were going to do it. Um, I think it's possible. I, I, you know, there are guys out there who do it. I mean, the guys who play on the, on the professional tours, uh, they love the game. And so they love history. You know, I, um, I think it was at the open championship one year, Dustin was sitting out on the back porch hitting, hitting hickory drivers, something like that. Dustin sure. Johnson, and, um, and like I said, I've seen other guys who are playing them. I, I think if, if somebody could put it together and, and say, look, a year from now, we're going to play this charity event and we're going to invite, you know, uh, 24 players who really want to do it. And there's a prize involved in it. Um, and here's a year to put your hickory set together. Uh, I bet you'd have some guys who would get interested in it and, and do it. And I think you can make some money for charity. For sure. No, that would, that would be great. And also, it would just bring so many golf courses that, you know, couldn't be played by the pros. All, all those, you know, wonderful 60, you know, 62 to 6,600-yard golf courses that would kind of be tough to have those guys hitting the ball 4,000 yards, you know, on, on one tee shot to actually get out and play. So, <laughs> oh, man, that would just uh, – a little bit of a pipe dream for me. But uh, I, I know a lot of people that I talk to would be tremendously stoked to see the uh, the best in the world put some hickories in their hands and just kind of see what happens. Um, I would say, yeah, yeah, it I'm would sorry, definitely be a lot, it would definitely be a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And that puts a wrap on this episode of the golf guide podcast. Thank you again, everybody for listening. Uh, one last time, but uh, thank you again to our sponsor health IQ uh, to see if you qualify for lower rates on your life insurance. Uh, please visit healthiq.com forward slash golf guide or mention golf guide to a health IQ agent when speaking to them on the phone. Uh, as always, we are always presented by golfguide.net. Save 20 to 70% on greens fees at golf courses all over Northern California with a couple peppered in there in Southern California, Nevada, and Southern Oregon as well. And until next week, everybody, please enjoy yourselves. Please enjoy the Arnold Palmer Invitational this weekend. Let's keep our fingers crossed that Tiger is in peak form and in in addition to uh, watching golf, make sure you get out there and, and, and enjoy the links yourself this weekend. Try to get out, play a little golf. If you have any comments uh, or you have anything you'd like to, for me to cover on the podcast or anything going forward, you can always reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Uh, Instagram is probably the one that we check the most, but feel free to reach out to any of those for us. And uh, yeah, until until then, I, I guess I will I will be back next week. So uh, until then, mahalo, everybody. Thank you.